if your focus is letting the world know that you are doing these things um, on Instagram or, you know, kind of centering yourself as the awesome good person that does these awesome good ally things, um, that can receive a lot of critique from the marginalized group that you are supposedly being an ally for. And I think, you know, it's more complex than just like, don't post on social media about the allyship you're doing. But I think just thinking about, would you still be doing the things that you do if there wasn't a camera or a place to have this be written about you? That was Angela Dumlau, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 84. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me. The podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. As you might have noticed, this show isn't released every week like most other podcasts. Instead, full eight-episode seasons go live on the first of the month every other month. And in each season, you'll get to meet a wide range of interesting and refreshingly imperfect people who join me for one reason only, to share the truth of what's really going on in their lives and to talk about things that we think don't get talked about openly and honestly enough. That means deep conversations about work-life balance, body image, shame, fear, relationships of all types, sex, social media, religion, mental health, racism, parenting, self-improvement, goal setting, and more. And of course, since this is an adult podcast that covers adult topics, you can expect to hear adult language from time to time. So consider this your little warning on that. Let's see, what else do I want to tell you about this show? Basically, I just want you to know that no one's trying to sell you anything. No one's forcing their agenda down your throat. No one is trying to get you to fix yourself. No one's preaching a so-called perfect six-step life hack plan for anything, which thank goodness, right? Because I'm so over that type of stuff. Instead, my hope is that each episode of this show makes you laugh, think, and just feel less alone. Because honestly, that's all that I ever want, to know that I'm not alone. Which is why this podcast is more than a podcast. It's a community. And you won't hear any ads or any sponsors or any other kind of outside influence. The show is actually 100% listener-funded, and each new episode is made possible by people just like you, who have pledged $8 per eight-episode season. To do this, we use a platform called Patreon. And not only does your support cover the costs of producing the show and ensure that it can keep going throughout the year, but it also earns you access to over 30 hours of exclusive bonus content and a super fun community. You'll get extra episodes with favorite past guests, people like Kate Grace, Kathleen Shannon, Alexandra Franzen, and Carrot Quinn, just to name a few, with new bonus episodes added every month. You'll also get end-of-month reflection episodes directly from me, where I go into detail about my successes, failures, goals, and lessons learned each and every month. You'll get my popular weekly email series, Notes of Grit and Grace, in your inbox each Friday if you want that. You'll be able to join our fun, casual monthly book club if that's your thing, and you'll just have lots of cool opportunities to help shape the future of the show. So for all of that, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per season. That's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. Your support is what will enable the show to continue. And if you're in the position to be able to help fund the show, I can't tell you how much that would mean to me. Plus, it's going to be so much fun for us to be able to get to know each other behind the scenes in our community. And now let's dive right into today's episode. 
Today, you'll get to meet Angela Dumlau. Angela is a queer, non-binary, gender-fluid, first-generation, Philippinex-American theater artist and activist dedicated to affirming and uplifting marginalized folks and their intersectional identities. They are the director and co-producer of the one-woman show Post Traumatic Super Delightful, which has been featured in Glamour Magazine and Marie Claire Magazine. On the internet, Angela runs the Facebook page Call Me They, which was recently featured on Brit & Co. and Planned Parenthood's Pink Out Power Up newsletter for their trans and gender non-conforming inclusive viral memes for the She Persisted hashtag. Angela's fashion blog, Menswear Self-Care, features the intersection of queer fashion and radical self-care. Angela lives in Brooklyn with their partner, Caitlin. In this episode, which I just absolutely loved recording, Angela and I discuss self-care and specifically where fashion and self-care intersect. We talk about imposter syndrome and the value of aiming for progress over perfection in all things. We dig into the need for gender-inclusive language in mainstream culture, and we talk about LGBTQIA representation with Angela sharing personal stories of why representation matters. Angela also shares stories and ideas about how to be an effective ally for an oppressed or marginalized group, and the difference between true allyship and image-based ally theater that's really just for show. To wrap things up, we talk about intersectional feminism, and why any movement, like feminism, needs to focus on more than just finding common ground, which often erases people who don't fit a certain mold. This conversation was so uplifting and educational for me personally, and I just know that you'll love hearing from Angela as much as I did. So all of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all of the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at NicoleAntoinette.com slash podcast. Awesome. Let's do this. Angela, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Nicole. Okay, where do I want to start? I want to start with the incredibly kick-ass James Bond images that you have been creating lately. Tell me the story about that. Absolutely. Uh, So I have a Facebook page called Call Me They. Um, The reason it's called that is because I use they, them pronouns as a non-binary person. And I basically use it to just post my thoughts on the internet, uh, which is pretty much what the internet is for. So I use it mostly to post social justice thoughts, thoughts about race, gender, etc. And I saw on Twitter recently an article about how Ryan Gosling is in consideration to be the next Bond. And I just thought to myself, I don't think we need another conventionally handsome white cis man to be James Bond. And how awesome would it be to have a woman or non-binary gender conforming person or trans man to be James Bond. And so I started this album called The Next Bond Is dot dot dot. And I was just taking photos of actors who I think could be a great James Bond. And so some people I have on that list are Angelina Jolie, who's obviously an amazing action star, uh, Carrie Washington from Scandal, uh, Laverne Cox from Orange is the New Black, um, and kind of taking them and imposing the 007 logo on top of that and just like showing why does James Bond always have to look the same every time that he's reincarnated? Uh, And I I really appreciate you uh, uh, calling that out. Um, I've made a few men on Twitter very upset about this. I've actually, uh, it's been really interesting. They get really upset when I try to change James Bond from being a man. 
Um, but I think that is even more reason to kind of push the envelope and make people think outside of the box. Um, Blake Lively recently named her daughter James. So this argument that James Bond is a man is kind of moot. Uh, but some people have trouble thinking outside of the way things have always been, which I feel like is kind of my M.O., uh, being on here to talk about myself and and have my internet presence. Totally. No, I something that I feel like has been a theme in my life so far this year, especially in 2017, is just questioning assumptions. Like it's so interesting how we get stuck in certain thought patterns or, you know, certain beliefs of this is how things has to be or have to be or this is true or this is reality. I mean, the James Bond thing, it's it's kind of a small example or some might say a silly example, but I think it's a perfect example of you just assume, okay, well, James Bond has to be a man and has to be a white man and has to be that. Why? I mean, that's why, right? Like there's no, like if you actually start to poke holes in it, why couldn't that be played by someone else? And I don't know, I just love that. It's like a, I don't know, it's uh, like the opening of the assumption box of, oh, well, if I'm willing to question that and why can't Carrie Washington be James Bond? There's literally no reason, right? So. Right. Definitely. And and I think uh, I'm, I'm definitely misquoting this, but one of uh, a quote that I kind of hold by is one of the most dangerous things that someone can say is we've always done it this way. And, you know, if you look back on history and, you know, look specifically at American history, the idea of we've always done it this way has kind of always been stricken down and um, taken forward by change and, uh, you know, new rights for people. So we've always done it this way um, is an argument against women voting, is an argument against black people voting, is an argument against uh, gay people getting married. Um, Just because something is the way we've always done it isn't a reason to keep doing it a lot of the time, especially when it's holding people back, whether it's rights or creativity. Um, So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel that, I mean, what you said is so true, not just in kind of these bigger, maybe social justice or other issues, but I feel like the same is true even in small personal, like, let's say, you know, it's someone you've been friends with for a long time or, you know, been an acquaintance for a long time and the relationship just isn't serving you anymore or whatever that, well, we've been friends for a long time. Okay. But that's not necessarily a reason to continue to have that relationship, right? Or, I mean, that's again, just one example, but that it is funny how often we rely on that sort of excuse or rationality when that's just because something's been done a certain way isn't enough of a reason to keep doing it. There has to be something else. Exactly. And I think that friendship example is a great example. Um, I definitely think about that in my life. Uh, Self-care is something really big for me. And um, I actually have an Instagram where I mix self-care with fashion, which you can get into. But just back to the friendship thing, like people will think, oh, you know, friendships, they're not as important as uh, romantic relationships, which I feel like people, you know, are constantly going to, um, you know, advice columns about and reevaluating, like, is my partner giving me what I need? But friendships are, to me, um, just as important relationships. And you do have to evaluate uh, if you are getting what you need out of that friendship, because it, it just time doesn't make a friendship. It's the actions that are put into both sides um, for making that relationship thrive. Um, And so, you know, really uh, self-evaluating your needs and and your wants and uh, what makes you happy, I think, uh, especially now is something that we can all do to, you know, 
to really ground ourselves. Um, I'm really holding to recently uh, the idea of joy as resistance. Um, a lot of people are, you know, marching in the streets and writing letters, but at the end of the day, to be able to be someone who who wants to fight against um, this administration, which uh, is discriminating against a lot of people, is is being able to keep that joy. Just being able to be joyful in your day is an act of resistance against um, hateful ideology, I think. Yeah, I think so, too. I, I mean, this is definitely this being, I'd say, the last six months, the most politically involved that I've ever been ever. You know, I mean, I guess people come to things later. They come to things when they come to things. But some of the best advice that I have seen or read or kind of received is something along the lines of that in order for activism to be a long-term thing, you have to find ways to make it fun, which I thought was really interesting because it's really easy when you're talking about protesting serious things, right, and really meaningful issues and things that are often really heavy, that, of course, there it's important to take it seriously, and yet being able to find levity and find fun and, you know, do it with loved ones and just like things like that it's okay to have a good time doing that type of stuff, too, that it doesn't always have to be this like doom and gloom type of situation in order to be taken seriously. Absolutely. I love having fun and joy and smiling. Uh, and that is definitely what keeps me going, not just the, you know, waking up every morning and checking my newsfeed and getting angry. <laughs> that definitely can be exhausting. Like people I hear talk about being exhausted and it's really true. Um, I actually, uh, as my day job, I work at a consulting firm for progressive nonprofits. Um, it's called MNR, M, the letter M plus R. And it is our job to keep up to date with the news. Um, a lot of the organizations I work with are directly impacted uh, by what is going on with this administration. Uh, I work with Planned Parenthood, actually, um, on their digital advertising side. And, you know, just remembering that we are doing good for people who need reproductive uh, healthcare and fighting for reproductive rights and finding kind of the little victories and hearing from people who really care about this organization as opposed to, you know, just kind of getting downtrodden and feeling really hurt every time something happens. It's just knowing that there's so much power in the good that we do um, is really exciting. And I, and I do find that joy is really integral to that. Yeah, so I love this this idea that you know joy is a form of resistance, which makes me want to ask you to tell me about. I mean, what brings you joy? But specifically, like things that other people would categorize as like guilty pleasures. Like, what are the things that like when you, if you just want to feel good, like what are your go to things? Oh my gosh, uh, let's see. I would say uh, manicures and pedicures are definitely a go to joy. I just got my nails done in a very bright blue. Um, I asked uh, one of my best friends at work, what color should I get my nails? And she said, bright, bright like you. And that is kind of the loveliest thing someone could say. Uh, but definitely uh, taking care of, I know it might seem a little narcissistic, but my looks. Uh, going off of that, I have a blog. It's called Men's or Self Care, which you can find on Instagram. And I would say that definitely dressing up is one of my joys. Uh, I posted recently that I was feeling kind of pretty crummy after uh, the news came out 
the other week about um, taking back trans children and kids' rights in schools. And that made me just feel really bad. And when I woke up in the morning to get ready to go to work, I was like, what can I do to feel in control? What can I do to feel joy? And I put on a suit. I put on one of my suits uh, and it made me feel powerful. And that was that gave me some joy. And when I came into the office, people told me that I looked really sharp and that made me feel really good. Um, and so men's wear self-care is a continuation of that idea as joy, as resistance. Um, in addition to, you know, the average fashion blogger, I'll sometimes write a little note after about how I'm feeling. I'm very uh, transparent about, um, you know, my love of self-care, which stems from uh, being someone with depression and anxiety. Um, I try to be really open about that because I really believe in ending the stigma um, about mental health. Uh, so I just try to show people that, you know, there are good days and there are bad days, but um, just keeping going and finding the things that you love uh, can can help uh, push through those hard days. And so the thing that I love is uh, wearing fun menswear fashion. I am obsessed with this. So listen, I, I definitely want to dig into this more. Um, I, I mean, I had so much fun going through your Instagram, right? Like looking oh, at all this. You. It's something, it's funny. You know, when, what do I want to say, when you hear about something like a topic or, you know, maybe a new word or something, it seems then all of a sudden like it's popping up everywhere in your life. So definitely. I, around the same time as I started going through this Instagram account of yours, um, the, are you familiar with the brand Wazelle? I it sounds familiar, but uh, tell me more. So it's a women's running and athletic apparel company that just does some really awesome stuff as far as just like supporting female athletes and that kind of stuff. And they have, you know, not afraid to speak out politically and that kind of stuff. And they've done some writing on their blog um, about a term that I hadn't heard before this called enclosed cognition, which is basically like the effects of clothing on cognitive process, like this idea that you can use something external like clothing to amplify what's on the inside right Absolutely. and um, which is super interesting there's a new york times article a couple years about it and i found a lot of parallels between that and what you're doing with menswear self-care and i just i know i think that's a really interesting concept this idea of you know putting care into our appearance or our clothing choices which is sometimes brushed off as like superficial right or right. shallow but that and I guess in theory it can be right in certain ways but that there is like a, a real power there in how we choose to kind of represent ourselves in that outward way yeah absolutely I would say that um, men's or self-care actually kind of started uh, a little sillyly that is not a word, but I've just made it one um, that my best friend and I, you know, we would text each other on Sundays and check in what we were doing for our self-care. So it'd be like, I'm painting my nails. I'm doing a face mask. Like I'm getting my outfit ready for the next day. And and my friend came up with, you know, menswear is self-care. And I was like, that is amazing. And kind of we would, you know, if we, we would send each other pictures and we would like label them as like menswear self-care. And then uh, around the end of last year, around November, maybe, I had the idea, November, October, I had the idea that could be an Instagram. Um, on, my, on my personal Instagram, I had been posting outfits and I was like, wait a minute, I think that I need to do this. And so I started Men's Our Self-Care on Instagram out of this 
kind of need to be creative. Um, I come from a very creative background. I was a theater major in college um, where I studied directing and uh, coming out of school, I um, did a lot of theater and um, I do find myself now, you know, in a more corporate uh, space with digital advertising, but I, I kind of was just feeling down in the dumps in a slump. And I was like, I need something to, to make my mind, you know, move in that way that it used to. And so menswear self-care gave me that outlet to, you know, take really cool pictures and um, think of how I'm going to frame them with my caption and um, looking at it as marketing and how I'm going to promote it and uh, networking with people. And so those kind of things all came together through this perfect storm of menswear self-care. And I've only received amazing feedback from it, um, you know, making connections with other uh, fashion bloggers on Instagram. And it's it's all been very cool. I would say my coolest part of Ensor Self Care was I was recognized um, when I was uh, shopping um, in Harlem at this place called Sugar Hill Market, which has um, Harlem based uh, residents uh, who sell their goods. And uh, this woman that I met uh, recognized me <laughs> from Ensor Self Care. And that was kind of like, this is this is pretty darn cool. I love that. I know that kind of mixing of the worlds of someone recognizing you or coming up to you just randomly in your regular life is it's happened to me a couple times and it's always like a mind blowing. I don't know. It's like a cool experience. Yeah, definitely. So describe for me the an outfit, not necessarily the outfit, but an outfit that you feel like really represents what would make you feel like sharp and strong and awesome. Awesome. So we definitely have to start with the socks. I know that might seem odd, but wearing really colorful socks that um, when I cuff up my pants, you can see with my shoes is really awesome. So we'll start from the feet up. I would say definitely my brown wingtip Oxfords and my socks. I would wear my I'm getting really into detail, Nicole. So I hope that you are happy that you asked this question. Um, I would wear my navy socks with anchors on them and red polka dots. For my pants, I would wear high-waisted black jeans that I would cuff up so you could see my socks, a button-up white shirt, suspenders, and on top of that, I would definitely wear a navy blazer and probably a lapel pin. I'm a big lapel pin collector. Um, I recently got a very cute rainbow. Another one I really like that my friend surprised me with says Secret Society of Beyonce. (laughs) (laughs) And I have another one that I really love that just came in. It says uh, Product of Immigration, um, which, uh, you know, I love having political pins. And as a child of immigrants from the Philippines, um, I kind of like that kind of twist on, you know, like it's a product that's made abroad, but like that product is me. Um, and so that would probably that would probably be my outfit. And I would uh, put some product in my hair and feel really, really sharp. Uh, that's amazing. I love all of that. Now, <laughs> I'm definitely going to link to um, your Instagram in the show notes, too, so people can check out the types of outfits that you are talking about. Thank you. So outside of this, I mean, you mentioned um, kind of the getting your nails done or, you know, the outfit choices. This thing about self-care, I don't know, I always find it really interesting to dig into because I feel like it's such a 
buzzword, right? Or it's something that's like thrown around a lot. Like it's so important to do self-care. Here's the ways, 10 ways to whatever self-care. But but it's, I don't know that there's those types of articles, which is basically like someone telling you how to self-care, right? Versus in order for it to actually be caring for yourself, I think that it requires being honest with what do I need, right? Like how do I care for me? And so I'm curious, I don't know, for you, are there any other activities or behaviors or things that really fall into a self-care bucket for you and like what that looks like. Yeah, absolutely. I think it really does. Like you said, begin with listening to yourself. Um, I am a introverted person who is able to be very extroverted. Um, but in order to be extroverted and do things like talk on real talk radio with Nicole or go to a big party, I also need to I call it time to recharge for myself. And so self-care for me will be, you know, being able to say no to a cool event if I just know that I need some time at home alone to recharge and and be with myself so that I am able to be fully present and, um, you know, excited to be with people perhaps the next day. And yeah, I would say self-care is really grown to be connected to listening to what I need and listening to what I need being connected to being able to say no and not seeing that as something that I need to feel guilty for or as something that I should feel ashamed of saying. And I think that the world would be a really more functioning place if people learn to say no. Because I definitely see people who are afraid to say no. And that's kind of how burnout happens. You say yes to all these things, whether it be attending events or taking on extra projects or just simply doing things that they don't really in their heart of hearts want to do. And being able to really evaluate kind of the capacity that you have in your emotions, in your physical energy is what's going to make you be able to sustain um, through longer periods. Uh, Yeah, I think that it still kind of feels hard to say no, because I think that we are taught to, you know, say yes, be there to give a helping hand, uh, kind of be there, uh, present at, at all things, try not to feel FOMO, possibly. But the person that you owe the most to is yourself. And, and that's, that's what I think self-care is for me. Yeah. I love that. I think that's beautiful for me. I mean, this idea of saying no or setting boundaries is something that comes up on the show all the time. I've been thinking about this lately, just in terms of being honest with myself about why that's sometimes difficult. And if I'm really honest, it's because I want people to like me, right? So if I say no to them, Absolutely. they're going to be upset or they're going to, you know, that it's, it's one of those things that it's, it's easy to preach about, well, like just say no and take care of yourself and have boundaries. And like all those things sound awesome, but what's often not talked about is that the reason that's hard is because, I mean, usually I think it does come down to you don't want to disappoint people or you want people to like you or you want, I know that it's not always as, it's one of those things I think saying no is one of those things that is simple, but not easy, especially at the beginning, I think. I completely agree with that. 
setting boundaries is definitely something that uh, I continue to work on. And I think that I'll continue to work on for the rest of my life. Yeah. I mean, and they're always changing, right? Like sometimes I feel like for me, I go in season. Sometimes it's a season of, yeah, saying yes to a lot of things, right? And adding more to my plate. And sometimes I, what I need is the opposite. And just be, again, it comes back to that being honest with yourself about what do I actually need, you know, right now? And that that might be different from what I need next week or two months from now or two months ago, or, you know, we're not robots. Yeah. I really resonate with that. And I think, And that extra layer of, well, I was in a yes mood for the last few months, but now I'm in a no mood. Uh, People, you might think that people have expectations that you will say yes. So it becomes even more complex and kind of a catch 22 of, I know for myself, I'm definitely an overthinker that comes along with the anxiety I have. But listening to yourself is definitely much harder than it than it sounds. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. So something, I mean, obviously I just mentioned the kind of fear of not being liked is for sure something that comes up for me more often than I would like. Like, I wish that that wasn't true, if I'm being honest. Um, For you, is there kind of a reoccurring fear or challenge or thing that you kind of have to work with that comes up over and over? Absolutely. One of my, my most difficult things that I deal with is uh, this idea of imposter syndrome, mm. um, of not, of not being good enough or not, not belonging where I am. Uh, I think that that definitely permeates many aspects of myself, uh, growing up to being an adult. Um, I, as a theater major in college and someone who was working in theater professionally, uh, post-grad, just being in an arts environment uh, puts you in a very competitive mindset sometimes. And so it's very easy to compare yourself to your peers and think, oh, this person's doing X, Y, and Z, and I'm only doing X and Y, or why am I not in this place that someone else is? And, you know, I, I try to remind myself and remind people around me, you know, stay in your lane. Things are in a competition, but that's very hard in a society where everything seems like a competition. Every commercial is encouraging you to be more like someone else. Um, and in kind of fields that I'm in, like right now, I'm running a Facebook community page that kind of kind of launched into popularity uh the reason that you and I met Nicole was um, I had a tweet that went viral um, and suddenly I was getting a lot of attention and I was like, whoa, like, do these people know that it's just me behind this? Yeah. Um, and, and that's imposter syndrome. And, and, I, and I look at it and, and I did make waves with it and I'm very proud of it. And I'm very proud of um, promoting uh, trans and gender non-conforming people and representation. But I'm still just this person behind the computer who sometimes feels a little insecure and sometimes feels like the little child that they were. So I think the biggest thing in in working through that fear is accepting that those are uh, feelings to work through and uh, insecurity is just a natural human thing. Um, I don't want to say for all people, but definitely for me and acknowledging that it's not just going to be solved by doing, you know, X, Y, and Z list of 
self-care things that you find on the internet, it's going to be a process. Um, and as they say in AA, uh, progress, not perfection. Yeah. Um, I am really inspired actually by my partner, um, who just celebrated her four year sober anniversary. Um, and I, uh, similarly, uh, attend Al-Anon, um, because not just with her, I have, um, addicts in my life. Uh, and, and, you know, thinking about, about myself and progress, not perfection one day at a time. I think that all people could really, uh, live by those slogans, not just people who are touched by addiction in their lives, because that's really what we have is one day at a time. Yeah. Um, I mean, just like a moment of silence for everything you just said. That was amazing. Um, I think this idea, the imposter syndrome, it's so funny how easily we get trapped into the false belief that we're the only one who feels a certain way. I mean, (laughs) I talk about this all the time. Like, it's so cute that we think we're these like special snowflakes. Like, oh my God, I'm the only one that has imposter syndrome. I'm the only one that feels like people aren't going to like me or that is afraid of this or this, that. And I mean, that's honestly the like core reason that I started this show is because there's something really empowering about knowing that you're not alone. And of course, everyone's different and goes through different things, but really there's a lot of commonalities, right? In that experience, Maybe imposter syndrome shows up differently for you than it does for me, than it does, you know, for someone's sister's mother's boss, whatever. But it's still like I've never met anyone who has never experienced that. Right. So it's I don't know. It's right. just refreshing, even though I certainly don't have any answers. You don't have any answers. There are no, you know, capital A answers, I don't think. But just it is comforting to be like. Oh, okay, right. There isn't this, you know, special bubble of people who have everything figured out and be- I'm a failure because I haven't figured out how to break into that bubble. Like it's not real. It doesn't exist. Yeah, absolutely. And looking at people from the outside, that is only a very small percent of what is going on with the whole person. So when you kind of think about it rationally, comparing yourself to other people is kind of just impossible because you can never really know what's going on in their home life in with their family and most importantly what's going on in their head Um, I think that if we could all read each other's minds we'd be really happy to stay in our own yeah yeah totally and I think I mean even just to kind of add another layer to that I I guess I'm not surprised because again, we all experience imposter syndrome, but that that's what you said, because I feel like just from, you know, having consumed your work over the last couple of weeks, you seem to have such a strong voice and presence. And it's a good reminder that it's not something like imposter syndrome or insecurities. I think sometimes I can get stuck in the belief that I have to figure out how to overcome that before I can do something. It's kind of this either or, like either I feel insecure or I'm able to do, you know, the work that I want to do in the world where actually I think it's both ends. Like you can feel insecure and you can still do it, right? Like I think of this with running. I can be kind of lazy and tired and not in the mood and I can still go run, right? That they don't have to be this mutually exclusive thing. Absolutely. I definitely really resonate with that. Um, And it makes me think of, you know, the idea that if you wait for the right moment, you're never going to do the thing that you want to do, because the idea of the right moment is gives you possibly the excuse to never do something because it doesn't feel right. Um, And that is a reason to just go out and do it. And I think definitely kind of starting my Facebook page and starting my fashion Instagram was a, you know, I'm not a professional 
fashion blogger. I don't have a professional uh, camera, but I'm a person who has an iPhone and has some clothes that I like wearing and, and I'm doing it. Um, and not comparing myself to other fashion bloggers because what I do is unique to me and having my voice out in the world um, feels like something that is important to me and something that I want to do. And I've received a lot of amazing feedback, but at the end of the day, I do it for me and I do it and I do it because it gives me joy. Like I said, joy is resistance. Yeah. Agreed. I mean, and I think that in a lot of ways, joy requires courage, which I don't know, maybe that sounds silly, but I think about, I've been thinking about courage a lot lately and I'm curious I mean, maybe this has something to do with what you learned studying theater or other things. Like, can you point to any specific moments where you, I don't know, were either kind of taught more courage or some, some, I don't know, this isn't really a coherent question, but I'm always curious about like the moments that people were able to kind of strengthen that skill set of like speaking up and speaking out and saying yes and just being kind of braver. Yeah, absolutely. I think Joy is definitely connected to courage. That is a very awesome connection to make that I don't think a lot of people would because I think a lot of people assume courage, like strong muscles, you know, fighting on the battlefront. But to be able to sustain that courage, you definitely need joy. So I just wanted to um, witness that and validate that, Nicole. Um, But in terms of finding courage for myself, I think it really comes into thinking about me uh, coming out as a non-binary person um, and the connection of that to my activism. So I guess to give a background on myself, uh, you know, I am a queer person. Um, My partner is a woman and uh, I have been out and proud um, since college. So for a few years and, and really, you know, being really, confident in that aspect of myself. But I think uh, with the rise of more representation in the media of um, trans people, uh, specifically people like Laverne Cox on Orange is the New Black, and um, there was that time cover about the trans tipping point and uh, thus this more acceptance of not cisgender people, cisgender being uh, people who identify with the um, gender they were assigned at birth, um, usually basically by doctors according to what one's genitals look like, uh, to get very specific. Um, And I was a very out and loud uh, activist for for trans people and and gender nonconforming people. Uh, and there was that little wrestling inside myself like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm such a big activist for this, but, you know, I'm still cis. I, I still, you know, I'm just an activist. I'm, I'm just an ally. And, and as I kind of dove more into my activism, um, reading a lot more, uh, I attended a, a course 
last fall called Gen Sex NYC, um, which is an anti-oppression gender and sexuality workshop where every week we would have a theme that we talked about. Um, it wasn't so much a class, but uh, just an informal workshop. And so we would have a week where we talked about gender and we would have a week where we talked about race. And um, it was a way to kind of, you know, talk about things that kind of we hear all the time on the news or we hear people saying buzzwords about, but it was a way to like just be able to ask simple questions and have a safe space. And so, you know, as someone who was really, you know, active and thought they knew a lot about these stuff, about these things, as I talked about them more, I kind of realized, wait, I've been kind of ignoring I've been really intellectual about all these things, but I've ignoring kind of the emotional inside of myself. Um, and I started to think about kind of who I was and what I'd been raised to think I was and, and what I thought of myself as. And I started to understand that I didn't feel comfortable being called, uh, feminine pronouns, which are she, her, hers. And I didn't feel comfortable when people called me a lady or miss and, understanding that my really strong ties to fighting for transgender and gender nonconforming people came from being gender nonconforming. And it, it wasn't the kind of courage that I was describing before, you know, the assumption of strong muscles and, and on the forefront, but it was the understanding that, oh, I see myself finally for who I am. And so I think to tie it back to menswear self-care, I started menswear self-care under the assumption that I was a cisgender woman who liked wearing men's clothing um, and that kind of fashion sense to now where I have kind of evolved menswear self-care to being a non-binary person who wears clothes. And a lot of the time they are uh, generally masculine clothes. But if you kind of look through my photos, you'll see me wearing makeup or see me wearing a woman's jumpsuit. And this idea that fashion has no gender and that um, fashion also is full of gender. And yeah, I think people look at me and, and they'll tell me like, I seem so confident or, or knowledgeable, but I'm a really introspective person that has been figuring out this journey for a long time. Um, so yeah, I don't know if that's exactly uh, a normal courage story, but that's that's my courage story. I mean, is normal even a real thing? Right? <laughs> that's that's your story, and that's I mean, that's amazing. I'm so grateful that you shared that. I feel like this. I mean. When you really dig into courage, for me, I feel like I identify courage with naming what's true for you, right? And that that's, again, something that seemingly maybe is simple, but not easy, but that it takes, I think, a lot of courage to just say, this is what's true, or this is what I see, or this is what I believe, or there's there's just something in that that can be almost maybe quiet courage. It doesn't have, like we think of courage as this has to be this really loud, outspoken stuff. And sometimes it is, and that's great. And we need that and people who are willing to do that. But that I think that courage can also be a quieter thing as well. Definitely. 
I definitely um, embracing that quiet courage in myself. So when we were chatting by email before recording, just on, you know, for me to get an idea of what you're super excited about and what topics you really want to talk about, um, one of the things that you said was that you wanted to talk about representation, specifically LGBTQIA plus representation. So what in there did you really want to discuss? Yeah, absolutely. So just want to talk about my big long acronym LGBTQIA. Um, I think people are really used to seeing LGBTQ or LGBT. Um, so just to kind of give background on that, that stands for lesbian, gay, trans, queer, intersex, asexual, and a plus sign to be an umbrella over people who um, are on the spectrum of queerness, but may not necessarily uh, live under one of those labels. And I wanted to talk about uh I'm going to use queer uh, as a synonym for LGBTQIA because it comes off the tongue a little (laughs) easier um, for our listeners. Uh, Queer representation um, and just how important it has been for me and how important representation is at large. Um, So, for example, uh, uh, currently on ABC, there's a miniseries just that just aired is called when we rise i don't know if you've heard of it nicole no i haven't Uh, yeah so it um just aired this week it it was written by dustin lance black um who wrote uh milk um and ate the play which was about proposition eight um in california and it depicts um queer activists in san francisco um, in the 60s and 70s, uh, and ABC has been kind of calling it this landmark event, and I was watching it this week with my partner, and I was seeing uh, on ABC, which I usually think of as, you know, a very wholesome channel, which obviously it has become less of that in years, and having Scandal and Grace and Addy and all that, but being able to see all of the leads on the show being queer people, Uh, queer people in love, seeing queer people kiss. And it might be something that a lot of people might take for granted um, that we are seeing more queer people on TV. But if you kind of look at how much uh, queer television or queer characters there are and still think of that as part of a slice of a bigger pie, it's still a really, really small part. Um, And that is to say that, you know, that representation um, slice of the pie uh, needs to get bigger uh, because there are so many more stories to tell um, of different kinds of queer people, um, particularly um, trans people, gender non-conforming people like me. Um, There definitely aren't really many stories um, in pop culture for intersex people or asexual people. And um, I think when a lot of people just think of queer representation, they just think of, you know, happy gay male couples. And that's only one kind of story. Um, And that kind of conversely leads to how many stories of happy straight people have we seen on television, in film, um, in books kind of everything under the sun, different kinds of ages, different kinds of backgrounds, different kinds of of races. And we kind of need um, that vast 
uh, uh, nuance across gay storylines, queer storylines as well. Um, so that's kind of the starting point for my thoughts on LGBTQIA representation. Yeah, I think this idea of representation is really interesting and I think is often taken for granted by, I mean, like I can only speak for myself, but like mm-hmm. anyone who's in any, has any kind of identity privilege, right? That you just mm. don't think, you know, you mentioned how many happy straight couples, how many angry straight couples, how many, like, <laughs> that it's the fact that it's a, you know, straight couple isn't really relevant to the story. Like they get to have stories that are much more nuanced and complex that that's not even really an issue. Whereas I like that, I think, I mean, I mean, I guess I don't know. We could go through like popular culture, like, you know, queer representation, but that is always a huge, I think, part of the story or like, oh, look at us that we're so progressive that we have a queer couple or do you know what I mean? Like that it's that that's the focal point as opposed to, you know, just that that's assumed as like a cultural norm. So then they just get to have those stories played out that this idea of like we really, I think, learn through representation, through what we see, through stories that are shared. If you're never, I think about this a lot in like body positivity and fat activism. And like, if we're never exposed to anything other than, you know, fitness Instagram accounts where everyone (laughs) is like super tiny, you know, model person, then that's just what you assume that it has to look like to be fit, right. Or to be strong or to be whatever that just the act of exposing yourself to other body types, right. Or other things that like over time, it doesn't seem as jarring to you or as different or, you know, what, I don't know if I'm making sense, but you are absolutely making sense. I'm totally on the same page with you there. So when it comes to representation, do you remember, I don't necessarily know the first time or have there been any particularly memorable times when you felt like you saw yourself represented in popular culture? That is a very good and complex question. Um, so it depends on how nuanced we want to get about seeing myself. So uh, I, in addition to being a queer, non-binary person, um, I am Philippinex, um, which is uh, the kind of all-encompassing term of Filipino for all genders. My parents are immigrants from the Philippines, um, and I'm a bit of a darker-skinned person uh, with a short haircut, uh, read a little androgynously masculinely. So those are uh, a lot of levels for, I think, um, identities that are not necessarily uh, privileged. Um, So actually going back to when we rise on ABC, it sounds like I am a spokesperson for them, which I am not, just something I watched this week. <laughs> um, actually, there is an actress on there, Ivory Aquino, um, who is a trans Filipino actress who actually just came out as trans publicly um, because of her playing trans activist Celia Chung on the show. So Ivory Aquino, she is a woman that passes as cis, cisgendered, and has been playing only cisgendered roles previous to this. And she is Filipino. I don't know if I mentioned that. And she is on the show. And she is an out and proud trans Filipina woman. And and Filipina, Filipinx representation is a little few and far between. 
But in terms of just the Philip and X part of my identity, um, my first role model um, was Leia Salonga. Um, many people know Leia Salonga as the voice, uh, singing voice of Jasmine from Disney's Aladdin and Mulan, Disney's Mulan. Um, but she is also a huge uh, Broadway star. Um, she was in the original Miss Saigon, which was how she became famous. And, and she's Filipina. And she is a very strong, smart woman. And, and I like to tell people, to try to explain to them how big Leia Salongo was in my life. Growing up in the 90s in my Filipino immigrant household, there were the great divas. There was Whitney Houston, there was Mariah Carey, there was Celine Dion, and there was Leia Salonga. And in our household, she was equal to all of those women, um, but probably not in my classmates' household. Sure, yeah. Uh, so being able to see more Filipino people represented um, more recently has been really great. Bruno Mars is part Filipino, um, and and us Filipinexes really take pride in him. Um, but seeing someone that is just like me, it hasn't really happened yet. And I think that is part of the reason that I've kind of made myself a fashion Instagram and put myself out there because I wasn't, I wasn't seeing a lot of other people like me. Uh, recently, though, um, Twitter loves its hashtags and uh, the hashtag non-binary positivity was going around. And I actually connected with another non-binary Philippine X uh, in California just through this hashtag because we commented on each other and said, you look really cool. It's nice to find someone like me. And that is kind of the magic of the internet um, in addition to connecting you and me, Nicole. Yeah, I mean, the magic of the internet with this kind of stuff, I feel like cannot be understated. And it's an especially strong argument for exactly what you're doing, you know, speaking your truth and being who you are out loud. And even in maybe simple ways, or if it doesn't seem like a huge radical thing, it gives people the benefit of what I call like the me too moment, you know, where someone sees it and they're like, oh my gosh, me too, right? I also, you know, want to wear men's clothes as self-care or I want to, you know, any one of these things. Um, It's really, I think, important important just for us to say in however we're you know much more comfortable what's true about us and our experience because then it gives us the opportunity to connect with someone else who maybe hasn't seen themselves represented or you know something like that yeah absolutely um so something that you mentioned before or lightly touched on um this idea of you know pronouns and sort of the importance of asking for pronouns, you know, and respecting them um, when, you know, with either meeting new people or just in general that I feel like has, maybe it's just that I'm paying attention to it more, but I feel like that has hit a little bit of a tipping point as well. Would you agree with that or that more people are talking about that? Yes, I would definitely agree with that. Um, I've been coming into more and more spaces where uh, when you write down your name tag, people will also ask ask you to write down your pronouns, um, seeing more people just explicitly have their pronouns in their bios and, and online. Um, and I think that is related to the trans tipping point. Um, you know, Laverne Cox is a woman. She just happens to also be a trans woman and her pronouns are she, her. It is just completely incorrect 
to ever use the pronouns he, him for Laverne Cox, even though there was a time in her life where uh, she was being called those pronouns. Um, And I think that it can kind of sometimes be odd for people to say their pronouns. Um, But I would say it's usually just odd for cisgender people who have never had to think about oh, my pronouns could ever change or be something else. Um, And I think that it's pretty fantastic that this is coming into conversation uh, recently. So Gavin Grimm, who's um, the face of um, the lawsuit with the ACLU regarding um, trans kids' uh, students' rights um, to use the bathroom that they want, Um, ACLU uh, recently put out a brief that uh, the the side that is arguing against them was misgendering Gavin and was using she her pronouns instead of he him. And they kind of wrote this amazingly shady brief that was like, this is not correct. You need to use the correct pronouns. We are fighting a legal case and you need to do this correctly from now on. And uh, it was kind of going around the Twitter world, Twitter world as as a sick burn um, to kind of just take down people who just refuse to do what people ask, use their pronouns. Some people I've come across who are resistant to using one's pronouns you know, they just really seem to have a hard time about something that literally does not affect them. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yes, I. I don't mean there's so many things that we could say about that, right? <laughs> like how, like this isn't sexually isn't about you. This is making someone else feel safe and comfortable and honored, and just do it. I don't know, but it's. I do think you know what you said before about if you are as I am, someone who's never questioned using like she, her, you know, pronouns for myself. If you've never questioned something or you've never experienced any kind of I don't know, oppression or marginalization about something, it's easy to not because you fundamentally don't care, but if you've never been presented with something as a problem in your own sphere, and if you're not seeing that represented, right? Call back to what we were talking about before. I think mm-hmm. that it is it it is easy to gloss over it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that I don't expect everyone in the world to, you know, be wearing pins that have their pronouns on them and, uh, you know, just changing overnight. But I think that um, just having an open mind to the ways of the world are changing. Like I was saying before, uh, doing the thing the way we've always done it hasn't always yielded the best results. Absolutely. I mean, and again, obviously, we were talking about assumptions before. Something else that I have been thinking about is, I don't know, just the way that we assume, you know, based on, let's say, how someone looks, we just assume their gender identity or their sexual orientation. And that's how someone looks doesn't determine those things. So being able to just take a pause and say, okay, just because I look at this person and assume X, Y, or Z doesn't actually make that true. Absolutely. Actually, one of um, the resolutions that I made this year was to not gender strangers. And it is really, really hard. Um, First of all, our brains, since we are born into this society, 
um, put things into schemas. They like to put things into boxes. When I look ahead at myself, I see a black computer um, because my brain needs to label what that thing is in front of me because it makes it easier to understand the world. And so, you know, we're growing up as babies and we see, you know, a masculine person with short hair and that is a man. And we see a feminine person with long hair and that is a woman. And instead of our brain saying masculine human person with long hair, uh, our brain Sorry, I mixed that up a little bit. Feminine person, a uh, human person with long hair, that is a woman. Our brain just goes, that is a woman. Um, it makes our brain think a little faster. And so I kind of put this challenge upon myself not to gender strangers because we just really honestly can't know someone's gender from looking at them for a variety of reasons. Um to make those explicit, uh, there are trans people who, um, you know, certain times when they're in public will on purpose try to look like the gender that they were assigned. For example, a trans woman will try to look more masculine or not dress the way they want to for safety. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and there are just a variety of, of different reasons people will look the way that that they do. And so we can never, we can never know. We could, we could look at someone and say, I think that person is a woman. You might be 99% right, but that 1% wrong is just a reason to not do it. And so I have really been challenging myself to not say, you know, that woman on the train or that man x y and z and just kind of just say that person because i really don't know that person um and it just gives it just gives a little more equality to how we experience the world um but obviously it's really hard and i i still i still challenge that in my brain myself and sometimes i still refer to myself as she her when i'm telling stories because our brain is really powerful. And once it's learned something for 20, 30, 40 years, it, it's not automatically going to just set off a switch and, and do it the way you want it to. Yeah, I mean, that that's a really powerful personal challenge. You That will definitely, I mean, obviously you've said a lot of things in this conversation that will stick with me, but I feel like that will be the one that I'm like laying in bed at 4 a.m. like thinking about. Um, just it's, I am really interested in, the power of language or word choice and that just that switch from that woman on the train to that person on the train. I remember I read, I think it's a couple years old now, a piece, um, that, uh, written by Lily Wasserman, it was called seven ways to make your language more transgender and non-binary inclusive. And it was talking about like essentially making the world safer through language and this idea that words have power and, you know, to stop using phrases like, opposite sex, both sexes, opposite mm-hmm. gender, both genders. Cause then that assumes this, you know, binary two, gender. Exactly. Exactly. And like just things like that, that again, I hadn't thought of previous to reading this piece and this, I just, I, I do, I think that's interesting. This idea of, I don't know, words have power, which of course goes along with representation too. But is there anything in that, you know, language choices or, you know, that you either want to speak to or something that's been on your mind? Absolutely. So I am really, really uh, passionate about uh, gender inclusive language. And it's very difficult uh, when gendered language is everywhere. Um, So let's start in the workplace. 
um, saying like, you guys, or if it's a group of women, like, hey, ladies, or something to that effect. Um, to start with you guys, um, a lot of people take guys to be a non-gender term, but that's kind of how language is that people assume that the male thing stands for all people. If you Yo, look at the word. Guilty of this, for sure. <laughs> I hear you. I say that all the time. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I do too. I slip into it. But like, if you look at the word human, it's human. Um, it, a lot of people just think, oh, that's, that's, that's a thing. And, 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 um, while even personally for me, you guys isn't offensive to me personally, but if I'm hearing from my trans and gender nonconforming community that that makes them uncomfortable, then that is a reason to not use you guys. Um, and the argument that it just rolls off the tongue really isn't good enough um, <laughs> for people. And it's so hard and I do it myself and I, and I want to like let people know that like I'm not perfect and I always use gender inclusive language, but there are just ways to teach yourself to kind of swap in words. So I love using the word team. Hey team, first of all, great camaraderie. We're a team. Second of all, it's not gendered. Um, and the other one that really gets me is uh, ladies and gentlemen. Um, that one, that one really gets under my skin because I am non-binary. I'm not a lady or a gentleman. Um, and I find this, you know, even prevalent in uh, queer. LGBTQIA spaces, this, you know, um, I'm going to stand with my brothers and sisters. I'm going to, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this event. And it's really hard to hear that when I'm supposed to be in a safe space with people like me, but I'm having myself erased, usually um, subconsciously, not on purpose. I'm sure people don't say uh, brothers and sisters to erase me. They obviously see me as their family, but I would really uh, love to see um, in the future people kind of change that default. Um, and, it, and it is usually the people with the best intentions, the coolest feminist activists. And just when I see uh, brothers and sisters, it, it just it just gets under my skin. So, you know, to give other examples to for replacements, because I'm not just going to like call things out and not give answers. So, um, ladies and gentlemen, you could say distinguished guests which also sounds super cool because that makes me a distinguished guest. Um, and then brothers and sisters, obviously uh, siblings works just as great. Um, and I, like I said, slip up too, even though I'm a person that thinks about these things constantly. So I can understand how someone may feel uh, resistant to kind of wanting to re-ingrain, um, relearn how to say certain things, but like I said, keep going back to this point. We we can't just keep doing the things uh, the way that they've always been done. Um, that's not how we move forward. That's not how we include people. Um, that's not how we get better. Yeah, I think... I mean, I just want to underscore what you said about, you know, you're not perfect. You make mistakes like this willingness. I feel like growth only comes from a willingness to make mistakes. And the same way that when we were talking about how, you know, it's it's hard to say no because you want people to like you. I feel like that same kind of insecurity or impulse to do the right thing or not offend anyone 
you know, that often is the thing. I mean, I'm trying very hard to push against this now, but that in the past stopped me from a lot of things because we just, we don't want to make a mistake. You don't want to use the wrong pronouns. You don't want to say that, you know, that I think that we just have to be willing to be wrong over and over again and be willing to be called out, hopefully with love, right? And apologize and learn. And like, as you know better, you do better. And again, much, much easier said than done. But I mean, in the spirit of Real Talk Radio, I'll just be honest, I had some, I don't know if fear might be too strong of a word, but some as I was obviously super excited to have this conversation with you, but even some of these topics are things where I'm like, I don't know that much about some of this stuff and I'm going to say the wrong thing or I'm going to, and then I'm like, wait, okay, this is not about you at all. Actually, just (laughs) if you say that you want, you know, more intersectional feminism and you want to learn about these things, okay, well then have these conversations and be willing to be like, well, shit, I said the wrong thing. (laughs) You know, it's, I don't know. Like I do think that that is a very prevalent concern is making mistakes and that people don't want to do or say anything until they know exactly the right thing. And again, to your point from before, if you wait for that perfect moment, nothing's ever going to happen. Yeah, you just took the words right out of my mouth, Nicole. Um, and I think that that is really true. And, you know, I I really don't want to mirror this conversation as like, I'm the person with all the knowledge about queer things, because right. I'm a person that also holds a lot of privilege. Um, I'm an able-bodied person. Um, I have class privilege. Um, I, I, you know, have a steady income. I have a home and um, I have, you know, a, a thinner, more... Um, culturally accepted body shape and, and all these things. And, um, I learn how to be a better ally about those things constantly and, and checking that privilege. So, you know, let's put each other like on the same level there. And the, the number one thing about being an ally, like you said, is, is being able to uh, listen and make mistakes, but also, um, if you have to be called out to like take that with grace and not let those insecurities and those walls come up because that's really what I think prevents people from being able to push through, um, whatever innate, um, you know, uh, discriminatory thoughts, subconscious or conscious that they may have, um, to, to, to get to the next level, to get to that place of, of really understanding, um, where another person is coming from. And, and it's truly a challenge because like we said, it takes, it takes courage. Um, it also goes back to imposter syndrome. Like I, you know, I have this Facebook page and people look to me as kind of the authority on, on race and gender, but I'm just a human person that is also always learning new things. And, and I think, Oh, should I, should people really be listening to me? But, you know, I, I have things to say and, and I am imperfect, which is why I love real talk radio so much. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to keep growing. Like I never want to get to a place where I stop growing where I stop being curious, where I stop learning the next new thing, because that, that is not a, that's not a place I want to be. Like I, I always want to be, to be pushing myself and there's no way, um, to get to that next level without feeling that discomfort of feeling that wanting to shy away. Like that's the moment where you have to push through. Mm -hmm. That's the moment where you can't wait anymore for the perfect moment. You just have to do it. Um, and I think that applies to so many different things from like you going for a run to me, like challenging my assumptions about, um, 
what a disability is. Yeah, sure. I mean, so you mentioned the word ally, which is something that I wanted to talk about a little bit, especially again, I think that that is becoming a more mainstream people talking about, you know, being an ally to such and such group of people or whatever. Um, What do you think just in your own, I don't know, like personal interpretation, what do you think it takes to be an effective ally? I think to be an effective ally the number one thing I've been thinking about recently is being an ally because you want change to happen for the marginalized group that you are being the ally for. This seems very obvious Um, as opposed to wanting people to know that you are an ally. Mm, Yeah. Okay. Say say more about that. Yes. Go. Yes. (laughs) So there is um, kind of this idea of ally theater um, that people have been writing about. And so that is the idea of doing allyship, for example, going to marches or, um, for an example, with Black Lives Matter, um, changing your bank um, to a Black-owned bank or, you know, uh, uh going to a pride march as a straight person. And those are really all awesome things to do. But if your focus is letting the world know that you are doing these things um, on Instagram or, you know, kind of centering yourself as the awesome good person that does these awesome good ally things, um, that can receive a lot of critique from the marginalized group that you are supposedly being an ally for. And I think, you know, it's more complex than just like, don't post on social media about the allyship you're doing. Right. But I think just thinking about, would you still be doing the things that you do if there wasn't a camera or a place to have this be written about you? Um, and yeah, it's complex. It's really complex. But I think that the real thing here, the best example I can give um, when I've tried to explain this to other people is that, for, say, for example, uh, that I don't even really have to use an example. Um, for example, the Orlando shooting that occurred um, where almost 50 uh, queer uh, Latinx people were murdered Um, because they were in a gay club and obviously it was a very painful moment for our country. There are two things that I give an example as for ally theater that you could do. One thing you could do is seek out articles or uh, uh, Facebook posts written by people of the queer Latinx community in Orlando and share those, amplify the voices of the marginalized people. Or you could write a long post about yourself and how you felt affected by it and kind of make it about you. And to an undiscerning eye, those two things may look equal, but to a more discerning eye, the second one is really ally theater because you're making the allyship about yourself. You're talking about the ways that you personally felt. And obviously those are valid feelings, but in the um, political and social climate that we live in, that kind of post is not doing the work of amplifying 
the voices that need to be amplified, um, especially if it is a privileged person. Basically, people who are privileged um, need to use their uh, audience um, to center and amplify uh, voices of marginalized people because they these uh, privileged people inherently will have a wider audience, a more open audience um, to to hearing certain messages. Um, yeah. yeah, it's something that I definitely chew on as someone who is very uh, active on social media with my Facebook and Instagram pages. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's not, it's not a hard and fast line. It's not, it's not black and white about like what you can and can't post, but I've definitely been rubbed the wrong way seeing uh, certain, for example, white people write very long essays about what they did to support black lives matter. Um, that doesn't feel exactly right to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that, the thing that sticks out, you know, is the biggest exclamation point for me in all of that that you just shared is sort of that moment of being honest with yourself of would I be doing, you know, this thing anyway, if 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 I wasn't going to put it on Facebook, if no one was paying attention, would I still be taking this action on behalf of this group? Right. And mm-hmm. I mean, I think I agree with what you said that it's it's nuance and it's not like a set of rules of never post anything on Instagram. Like that's certainly not what you're saying, especially because I do think that, you know, if what it took for people like me that weren't as active, right, to, I don't know, there is like something about, I don't know if social pressure is the right word, maybe it is for some people, but seeing things does cause, you know, a tipping point that gets people involved in things that maybe they weren't aware of or wouldn't have been involved in, you know, without, you know, someone that they already followed, you know, of a similar identity marker doing those things. So I think it's complicated, right, that there are of course, there's benefits to talking about the, the, that kind of stuff publicly. But it's yeah, I think that's the the underscoring question is like, are you doing this for attention for what people are going to think about you? Or do you actually want to create change? Yeah, absolutely. And to, to piggyback off this and, and to kind of use one straight example instead of going in all my different directions, like, for example, with Black Lives Matter, um, you know, are you showing up to a march and marching and posting it on Instagram and then not really doing anything else? Or are you going to a march, posting it on Instagram, dedicating yourself to buying black, dedicating yourself to reading more black authors, dedicating yourself um, to buying black art? You know, are, are you doing it in one part of your life or are you trying to apply this message of black lives matter and um, black people need to um, be celebrated in not only after we hear of a case of police brutality and death, but celebrating them while they're alive. Um, and I think it, it this um, idea of ally theater being superficial um, as opposed to being holistic uh, is what is really important. So only you can tell yourself if that Instagram post is um, just one piece of the puzzle or if it's the only piece that you are doing in the world. And, and the only person who can truly judge if you um, are, are, you know, making the change that you want to is, is yourself. Yeah. Um, I I, I think that's brilliant. Yeah. 
Thank you. Yeah. Sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just, (laughs) just like, yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Um, no, I think that again, I feel like, again, this idea of assumption is kind of a through line here that it's the same way that you were saying that a challenge for you is to not, you know, gender strangers. I am trying, I have very, I think as everyone does a complicated relationship with social media, I am trying very hard to continue to remind myself that even if everything that someone posts is true and authentic and, you know, whatever, it's only a small tip of the iceberg of everything else that that person is and does. And that if they post a picture of them at a march, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're doing more, but it doesn't mean that they're not doing more. And, you know, just to not put my own stuff on, you know, on someone else that they could be doing lots of things more quietly. I mean, I have friends I know that that don't even use social media, right? And are doing more activism work than some of the loudest people on social media that I do know. So it's, you know, for me, I think a reminder to myself to, again, like personally, always try to do better. And then also just not waste my time getting too bogged down in what I assume someone else is or isn't doing. Like, it's really not my job to police other people's I don't know, online behavior, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And it comes back to kind of staying in your lane and kind of parallel to imposter syndrome. That's like kind of the opposite of imposter syndrome. It's like judging someone else and how valid or imposter they are. Like just focusing on yourself can sometimes be the hardest thing, but it can be also be the most self-care thing you can do. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's also always interesting to me to pay attention to the things that are the most triggering for me. I mean, and I use the Mm. word triggering lightly, but you know, if someone's posting something and that's causing a strong emotional reaction, is it because it's something that actually is offensive that does need to be called out, right? That's one category of things. Or is it, you know, uh, tinging something inside me that's like, ting, 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 like you're not doing this thing that you say you want to be doing. So this person's action is like, you know, making something about it It was, uh, this might be a strange parallel, but when I quit drinking was five and a half years ago, almost six years ago, it was really, thank you. It was really interesting to watch when that like other people's reactions to that, right? That, you know, people who were supportive, people who weren't supportive because it me not drinking brought up some of their own feelings about their drinking behaviors, right? That it's the same thing with this type of allyship or activism. Like it's interesting for me to watch, ooh, if I'm having a weird feeling about this, is it because I want to be doing more than I'm doing? Because that's about me, not about this other person. Yeah, absolutely. I remember, I think it was the website everydayfeminism.com, I think. I remember reading something last year when I was digging into this and they were talking about uh, the idea of being, you know, an effective ally of kind of framing it as, you know, that in the ally theater, like you were talking about, that people want to claim it as an identity for themselves. Like I'm an ally. And they were talking about how it's an action and not an identity. And someone doesn't get to decide whether they're an ally or not. Rather, the people of the oppressed group get to decide whether they consider someone an ally based on their actions. And that really stuck with me. Yeah, absolutely. I I realized that I uh, did call myself an ally, uh, on here to, uh, certain marginalized groups. And, and I am not really, uh, in the place to do that, but, uh, I definitely continue to hope to, uh, through my actions, uh, be someone that can uh, raise up voices of, of marginalized people and uh, shout out to everyday feminism, because that is definitely one of my favorite websites that exists. Ugh, mine too. I feel, I feel like it like constantly makes me a better person. I'm like, Oh, I didn't know all these things. And now I know all these things. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, well, speaking of that brings up, um, 
you know, one of the last things that you wanted to talk about, which was intersectional feminism. I feel like everything that I've learned about intersectional feminism, I learned from that website. So <laughs> what did you oh what did gosh. you want to share about that? Absolutely. One of my favorite articles on everyday feminism that I, I turn people to is uh, why feminism needs to be intersectional. And and I know that we're kind of bringing this up as our, our last topic, but I think this whole time we have been talking about intersectional feminism, Nicole. Um, but uh, for people listening, uh, the idea of intersectional feminism Feminism as a baseline is that not all feminisms uh, or all experiences of people are equal because of the different intersections of the identities that they have, um, be that with race, ethnicity, gender, class, etc. So a, um, a very simple way to look at this is a white woman and a black woman experience the world differently. Um, they, uh, are both women and, and they, uh, uh, have that, have that on the same playing field, but a black woman experiences life, uh, differently from a white woman because of that intersection of that identity, um, together. Um, and some, big critiques of feminism is when it is not intersectional and when it leaves out um, certain people for the different um, marginalized identities that they have. Um, so going off of that, I feel like we've been talking about intersectional feminism for this whole episode. Uh, I've been talking about my gender identity as non-binary, uh, my uh, sexuality as queer, um, my uh, background as a Filipinx person, a uh, first-generation American, child of um, Filipino immigrants, and all of those things intersecting uh affect how I experience the world. Um, I experience the world differently um, than other people who don't have immigrant parents. I experience the world uh, very obviously differently as a non-binary person as opposed to um, a cisgender woman. Um, and I think the, the great thing about intersectional feminism is that um, you know, it sounds like a, a fancy buzzword and, and it, it definitely is and maybe being overused these days, but everyone experiences the intersections of identity. Um, they may experience it um, at different levels, but, um, you know, they they have their own life experience that is uh, affected by the different identities they have, whether they be privileged identities or marginalized identities. And um, I really strive on my Facebook page, Call Me They, um, to be as intersectional uh, as possible. Um, and some people are sometimes surprised to hear this, but um, there are feminisms, for example, that exist that um, exclude trans women because they believe that uh, trans women are not real women, which uh, in circles like mine sound very ludicrous, but um, there are definitely people that believe that. And there are people that also believe that uh, sex workers should not be included in feminism because they see um, what they do with their bodies as not feminist. Um, and the fact of the matter is that feminism um, and activism needs to include all people of all walks of life. Um, this is uh, tangentially related to the idea of respectability politics. Um, so for example, 
when we um, when we look at someone, when we when we say Black Lives Matter, um, and and unfortunately when we um, see someone taken, uh, when they're seeing their lives taken by police brutality, for example, a lot of the times news outlets will say, uh, you know, um, they had such a future ahead of them. They are doing X and Y in school. They they had this credential. They um, had this uh, military background. Example, uh, for example. And those are all um, respectable things. Those are all kind of things that people think give humans value. But at the end of the day, uh, Black Lives Matter and and people matter because they're human. Um, And that people who, uh, for example, uh, do not have any of those accolades still matter because their lives matter. And, And women who are sex workers matter because they are human like women who are trans matter because they're human there should not be a lock on the door for who gets to um be part of a feminism or activist movement um and so i'm really passionate as i was saying uh, on my page call me they about posting about different types of intersectional identities um, and definitely really voicing uh, aspects and and articles from uh, women of color, uh, trans women of color, um, feminine people of color, uh, because um, a lot of the times, uh, I would say mm, all of the time, um, these voices are, are the ones that are not usually heard. Um, and I have the privilege of having a, a Facebook page that people follow and, and want to, to hear my voice. And I can um, amplify their message uh, to do to uh, to hear these um, different perspectives. Uh, and um, yeah, I also just wanted to say that Call Me They started um, as an act of self-care. Um, I know probably starting a a blog where I posted a lot of really uh, radical feminist things may not seem like self-care, but I was finding that on my personal Facebook page, uh, a lot of the time I was posting these very political things. I was adding my commentary. Um, uh, I'm a very out and proud and leftist and uh, (laughs) radical person. And I was, I was getting a lot of feedback on these, a lot of positive feedback, but also a lot of discussion. And, it was making me feel really raw, um, especially post-election when Donald Trump um, became president. I don't want to say uh, won the presidency on purpose. Um, yeah. That I was posting a lot of these things and people were commenting on them and I was feeling very raw. And every day I opened my phone and the news was like giving me all these headlines that made me feel anxious. And I thought, you know, I love posting um, my activist thoughts, but I need to have them in a place that I can choose to have notifications on or not. And I can choose to go back and forth to depending on, uh, as we talked about, um, emotional and physical, uh, capacity, um, that I had to, to look at these things. So I started call me they as a way to kind of present that boundary between, uh, real life, personal Angela and online Angela, um, and I think it was a really good decision, and I'm I'm really uh, happy to to be able to have that platform, and um, to be kind of 
gaining new followers, especially through my uh, trans and gender nonconforming inclusive memes around the hashtag she persisted, um, which is how we met each other on Twitter, Nicole. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so yeah, so it, it, intersectional feminism just 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 feels so obvious to me and i and i find a lot of joy in kind of talking about it all the time um before i i got on here with unicole i was i was talking to my partner because i was nervous and uh you know she was there to remind me that i i love talking about this stuff and i i hope it's been going pretty well because i've been feeling really comfortable here talking to you yeah no i i mean i mean absolutely i think Oh, there's so much stuff in what you just said that that I whatever want to call out, but it's this idea, the thing that I keep coming back to with feminism or, you know, with making any movement, any ism, right, like more intersectional, I feel like the critique or the pushback that I see most often about that, and I'd be curious if you feel the same way, is that somehow by making things more intersectional, that it's being divisive, right? This idea of like within feminism, well, don't be divisive by bringing up race. That like this idea that on the surface seems like I get how that argument gains traction, right? Like, well, let's just focus on our common ground, thinking that that's more inclusive when actually it's erasing people's experiences. Uh, everything you just said there is is so on point Nicole. Um yeah, this I definitely have heard that pushback. I think um a really salient example is uh Bernie Sanders saying how we shouldn't talk about identity politics um and that we should just focus on kind of, you know, the middle class person and and all the things to kind of make his liberal promises, uh, X, Y, Z happen. Um, this is coming from someone who voted for Bernie in the primary. So I don't want to have any, uh, Bernie bro hate mail, um, <laughs> from this episode, but you know, to, to say, or to tell someone who is marginalized that we need to ignore identity politics or that we just all need to join together is the exact, um, antithesis of the understanding of intersectionality and the understanding of through your actions being an ally, because you do need to, uh, to the true way for us to, to reach equity and equality is to understand that people do have these different experiences. I think that, um, people who in the feminist movement want to kind of not focus on race or, um, want to be colorblind that most often comes from, uh, white people who are the most privileged. The idea of colorblindness is, is amazing in theory, the, but in practice, Privilege comes upon um, people who are white over people who are not white. And so it's easy for someone who is white to say we should all be colorblind because nothing is really going to change for that person. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, there is definitely um, uh, people who've written about like we really need to uh, end the idea of colorblindness and instead honor and uh, you know, be excited about all the different colors that we are, because it's through those things that make us different. Um, kind of, as we talked about at the beginning, uh, before we got on, on this episode was that, uh, getting into specifics is something that you're really interested here on real talk radio and, and, and of people being imperfect and, and telling their stories. It's, it's those stories that people, um, really resonate with and want to hear. It's not just, 
making the playing field flat and making us all equal. Like if we were all the same, uh, less life would not be as good. Life would not be as joyful and activism would not be what it is today. Yeah. I mean, and for me, the, that it's such a red flag of, you know, if the success of a movement, I guess if we'll call it a movement or whatever, relies on like silencing inconvenient voices within the movement. Like, what are you really aiming for? Right. Like, yeah, sure. Maybe it is more seemingly more convenient to the people, you know, in that have the privilege or whatever to just, well, let's just not listen to these voices or this over here because it keeps our movement more, you know, whatever the arguments that are made there. But I don't know, that like raises questions to me about the goals that are trying to be achieved. If you have to silence people in order to do it, I have some questions about that. Yeah, absolutely. So we mentioned um, the website Everyday Feminism. Are there any other either websites or people out there who you think are really kind of rocking these ideas that you'd like to give a shout out to or anyone whose work people should check out? Uh, Yes, absolutely. Um, Definitely. I think as a baseline, I really encourage listeners and basically everyone in the world to take in media and writing and art from people who you don't usually take in those things from. So particularly here, uh, people of color, um, trans and gender non-conforming people, um, disabled people, uh, uh, just people that don't usually uh, get to be on bestseller shelves. Um, So going off of that, I'm a really huge fan of Janet Mock. Um, I'm reading her book, Redefining Realness, right now, and it is so amazing. Highly recommended. Um, Roxanne Gay, um, who wrote Bad Feminist, um, is pretty much one of my favorite people on Twitter ever. Um, Let's see. um, I really encourage people, if they are into web series, uh, to watch Her Story, um, her story show online. Um, it follows the, um, romantic lives, romantic and personal lives of, uh, trans women. Um, like we were talking about before how there should be very many varied stories about, um, not just straight couples, but also, uh, queer couples. Like, uh, her story isn't just about this coming out story and like queer, queer, everything. It's like, these are about these women's lives. And on that show are these amazing, uh, trans actresses, Jen Richards and Angelica Ross, um, who you can follow on Twitter and Instagram in terms of, uh, blogs, uh, black girl dangerous is, is really awesome and teaches me a lot of things. A uh, really big fan of Issa Rae and awkward black girl. Um, her show, Insecure on HBO is definitely one of my favorites. Um, but yeah, I just really encourage people to to seek out media that would not necessarily be their go-to because I think that's that's really when people kind of ask me what they can do and, and I give them the obvious things, going to rallies, uh, writing letters, making phone calls, I tell them to to evaluate and take audit of the media because it's only through hearing stories that are different from our own that we are going to be able to see the world as we, um, and we, I'm saying we liberal minded people, which might not necessarily everyone listening, but we humans who want to connect to other humans. 
Yeah, I think, I mean, one that's such good advice, it's like the, the advice, this idea that what we expose ourselves to, what we consume, whether that, like, I think it's it's easy to undervalue the role that, let's say, who you follow on social media, right? Like, obviously, we were mentioning, um, you know, body image positivity before, like, just changing what you see on a day-to-day basis. How many times a day do pretty much all of us check social media, right? Or, like, what we're exposing ourselves to. I think about this, too, in terms of podcasts. Like, so much changed for me. Do you listen to Another Round? I do. Yes. It's one of my favorite shows. And I feel very clear that that's not for me. And I love it, right? Like that it's, but I've gotten so much, the episode that they did with, um, Janet Mock is amazing. If you haven't heard Mm -hmm. that, it's so good. Um, and just, yeah, I agree with you. I think that's a really great action step just to take kind of inventory of your media and, you know, just being intentional about integrating things that maybe wouldn't have been your go-to choice. That's something that I want to continue to do more of. So uh, the show notes section of this episode is going to be awesome. I will link to all the things you just mentioned. Oh my goodness. Yes. (laughs) So the way that we wrap these episodes up are with what we call community questions. So it's a series of kind of rapid fire questions that the listeners want me to ask all eight guests this season. So if you're down to answer nine random questions... I am so ready. Okay. If you could only watch one TV show for the rest of your life, which show would it be? It would be One Day at a Time, the remake, uh, 2017, that is currently on Netflix. Um, If you haven't checked it out, it is about a Cuban-American family that is a remake of a very old-timey show with a white family and it is an amazing very 90s style sitcom that makes me laugh and makes me cry i have not seen that so that is getting added to my list okay (laughs) next question of everything that you have spent money on in the past few months what's the one purchase it could be a thing an experience whatever that's made you the happiest Wow. Um, am I allowed to say the new apartment that uh, I started renting with my partner that we uh, finally live together alone in that has been my pet project that I love so much? Of course you're allowed to say that. That's a great answer. <laughs> I don't know. That question, I mean, it's funny, the questions that the listeners put forward and I you know, kind of go through them and they're always so smart and wonderful. And then to pick a couple, this idea of money has really been on my mind that you know, really paying attention to when we exchange money and happiness really does come as a result. So I don't know. I'm always, I, I like that question a lot. And it's interesting to hear what people are spending money on that makes them happy. Absolutely. What's something that only those in your close inner circle know about you or something that maybe people who only know you through social media would be surprised to learn? They might be surprised to learn that I am really obsessed with uh, pop music. Huge guilty pleasure of mine. And in college, I used to be a party DJ. Um, I was asked to DJ the huge, uh, very rowdy toga party um, at my college two years in a row. And that is kind of, I like to call my golden years. Um, so yeah, I I seem like this very uh, intellectual activist person, but I definitely get down with the top 40. <laughs> My gosh, I feel like we could do, we didn't even really talk about theater directing or that whole side of your life. I feel like we could do a whole other episode that starts with you DJing this party that you just talked about. So that's amazing. <laughs> um, what's something that you're not doing right now because you're afraid? Wow. Uh, I think that it is uh, taking ballet classes. Uh, I really loved ballet when I took it in college and my partner has been encouraging me, um, to go back, uh, since 
graduating and I am scared to. Uh, I, I'm not sure. I'm scared of getting back in that room. I'm scared of people judging me. Um, but it's something that really, really made me happy. And I haven't thought about it in a bit until you asked that question. Well, I hope that you do it. That sounds lovely. What's the one song, and now that we know that you are a a pop lover, what's the one song that you always turn up and sing along with when you hear it? Uh, I Want to Dance with Somebody by Whitney Houston. (laughs) Yeah, such a good choice. (laughs) Um, Isn't it funny, this is a random aside, how even songs that maybe we don't even love or never bought or never choose to listen to that we still like five, 10, 15 years later know all the words to. Like I'm convinced anytime I have trouble learning something new, I'm like, well, yeah, it's because I have every Alanis Morissette song memorized. Like, in my Yeah. Head. Our brain space is taken up by that. Those catalogs that live in the back of our head. Yeah. Like every Christmas Carol ever. I'm like, well, this is why I don't speak Italian because <laughs> <laughs> um, the next question, what's something that you really love about yourself? Uh, I love that I, that I listen, uh, to what I need, at least now. I love that, um, I can be in tune with what I need, um, and that I, uh, continue to, to learn how to love myself. How do you typically spend the first hour of your day? What does that usually look like? Well, there are definitely two different answers. So if we start with weekdays, I am uh, rolling out of bed a little bit late and um, I'm at work within the first hour of waking up because I have a 20 minute commute. Uh, But on weekends, I will spend the first hour of my day making breakfast uh, and watching reality television with my partner. And what's your favorite thing to make for breakfast? My favorite thing as of now, is making pancakes from scratch. Ooh, I love I love pancakes. You know, I also love waffles, and I keep feeling like I'm not going to buy a waffle maker because, you know, it's. I try to avoid pieces of equipment that just do one function, but waffles are just, like, so fancy and fun. Maybe I should get a waffle maker. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, one of my other guilty pleasures is Kids Baking Championship on Food Network, and they recently had to do a challenge um, where one group of the contestants had to make a pancake um stacked cake and then the other group had to make a waffle stacked cake and uh yeah basically what i'm trying to say is i love food i mean listen uh do you watch the great british bake-off i watch some of it yeah oh it's my favorite show oh my god that could be a whole other thing too okay so the next question um i know you already mentioned a couple of books but other than the ones you've mentioned um are there any books of any genre that you would say have had either a really big impact on you or maybe that you reread or recommend the most? Uh, I definitely think that would be Tiny Beautiful Things by Cheryl Strayed, uh, also known as Dear Sugar, um, who is obviously known for uh, the book Wild, which was turned into a movie. Um, It is just one of the most beautiful things I've ever read. It is an advice column book that just touches on so many amazing uh, parts of the human experience. And, and like we talked about earlier, uh, Nicole is the, the specificity um, of stories being something that ends up really resonating with people universally. Um, it has gotten me through some really hard times. I go back to it again and again, and I recommend it to all of my best friends and therefore recommend it to everyone listening today. 
Yeah, it's one of my top favorite books. I feel like uh, Cheryl Strayed in that book is like the patron saint of real talk that like this. Oh, man. It's the kind of book. um, (laughs) This might sound weird. I think I probably said this on another episode, but that I think of it to me, it's a fire book, meaning that like I Mm. as I'm reading it, I want to set it on fire because I'm so jealous that I didn't write it myself. I'm just like, I hate it. Like, I love it so much that I hate it. (laughs) I completely understand. It's just it's so real. It's possibly too real. And that's what makes it amazing. And my copy is like worn out and has like dog, like earmarks on all these pages and, and highlights on my favorite quotes. And it's just, it's just everything. I love that book so much. Yeah. I will say, you know, one more thing about in that book, because essentially, right, for anyone who hasn't read it, it's advice column you know, people, it's essentially someone's writing like a Dear Abby type help letter, right? And then she's responding. And the responses, like you said, they're so specific, right? Like telling very detailed stories from her own life, things that like maybe you think wouldn't at first glance be appropriate for, you know, giving someone advice. Why are you being so specific? But I go back to that, you know, you mentioned before we started recording, one of the things that I said to you was be specific, give specific answers. Like people really like that. But I think it's, it's really easy to think that the details of, you know, my own experience or, you know, everyone thinking that don't, I don't know that they're not, um, universal enough, but it's in the specifics of what happened to someone else or someone else's experience. Even if you can't relate exactly to that event, that's where a connection happens. Like you can hear the truth of someone else's specific story and take something from it. I think that's the way, that's the only way that we really move forward is by listening to the truth of other people's experiences. Absolutely. Totally agree with that. So the last question, if you could leave our community, the listeners with one call to action, maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take, what would it be? That would be to really evaluate uh, what brings you joy and to figure out how to bring that more into your daily life. Mm, I love that. And what's the best place for people to find you and say hi online? Do you have a favorite way to connect? Yeah, absolutely. So a few places on Twitter, you can find me at Angela C. Dumlau, D as in David, U, M as in Mary, L as in Larry, A-O, though I'm sure that will be in your show notes, Nicole. On Instagram, I am menswear self-care. And on Facebook, I am call me they. And are any of those your favorite? Uh, I, that's like picking a favorite child, I feel like. <laughs> um, I honestly uh, stan really hard for Twitter. Um, Twitter is my favorite social media, which uh, some people in my life don't understand because uh, they find it overwhelming, but I feel it really amazing and comforting. And of course, it's what led me to you. Yeah. And my husband works for Twitter, so I will share that with him. That always makes him happy when people are <laughs> like not dumping on Twitter. That's awesome. Um, thank you so much for all of your beautiful honesty. This was lovely. Thank you so much for having me, Nicole. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. I couldn't do this without you. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is now a 100% listener-supported show. So if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 30 hours of bonus content with new stuff added every single month, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight-episode season. I can't tell you how much your support means to me, and I can't wait to get to know you better behind the scenes in our community. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can, and no matter what, we're in this together. 